connection with the lecture this evening, I'm going to read from the 10th chapter of Hebrews, verses 1 through 14. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually, make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because that the worshippers once purged, purged should have had no more conscience of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a remembrance, again, made of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do, the will, o, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure, pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he might establish the second. By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth oftentimes with the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. It's our pleasure this evening to hear our brother Jim Gehring speak to us about the body prepared, the blood shed. Good evening, fellow students, beloved brethren and sisters. It's been uh, announced that tomorrow evening we're to have the pleasure of seeing some pictures. I'm sure they'll be very interesting. They were taken by Brother Jim Wojcik and his family on their recent trip to Israel. We're looking forward to that. Tonight, we're also going to look at some pictures. But they will not be shown by a mechanical device on a screen. They'll be seen with our mind's eye. That's a faculty that God has given us, and we should exercise it with a very great interest and enjoyment, because God is the originator of the pictures we're going to look at tonight. And he's caused them to be depicted by holy men of old who were inspired to paint, so to speak, these word pictures that we're going to see with our mind's eye. And if we examine them closely, they'll help us to understand, perhaps in a little more depth, some great truths which God intends to help us to prepare ourselves to be of further use to him when he has a, a, an even greater uh, blessing in store for this earth to those who, as a result of the examination of the pictures from the Bible, will have understood and so be qualified to exercise the judgments and blessings of God, which it is his purpose to someday pour out upon this earth. For over 1,900 years, the faithful brethren of Christ have met together once each week. And the focal point of their meeting is to partake of emblems which memorialize the body prepared and the blood shed. These two elements 
are the essentials of a sacrifice for sin and are before us not only in connection with the life and death of our Lord, at the la particularly at the Last Supper, but they are before us from Genesis to Revelation. If we look carefully, we'll see them. We should seek very earnestly to see them in depth. They are what we might call stereoptican pictures in color. And they depict very vivid scenes in depth and great meaning. But we can sometimes blur them by not giving them proper attention and close examination. And the closer we examine them and bring them into proper focus, the more we'll see in them, the more depth, the more beauty, and the more meaning. And therefore, we should seek earnestly to grasp the significance uh, of the meaning of the body prepared and the blood shed because they focus upon, ultimately, the life and death of our Lord. And in examining that, we should seek to go forth unto him without to camp, bearing his reproach. That is a part of the appreciation of the work that he did and how we can follow him in that work. Now to help us in the examination of our pictures, we'll look at the first one. Naturally, it opens in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. The first human pair we see in this picture have just transgressed the law of God for the first time. And as a result of that transgression, they stand naked and defiled before their Creator. We see them seek to clothe themselves with fig leaves. And we see that's a, a very inadequate and ineffective covering, but it's the only one that they, in their sense of guilt, could immediately they lay their hands on. We hear, these are sound pictures too, and we hear God speak to them. He speaks words of condemnation, of uh, curse, of sentence. And then we see something else. We see the angels, the Elohim, under divine direction, those angels carefully select and slay a lamb from those available, one that is perfect and without blemish. We see them slay that animal, and we observe the shedding of the blood. We see the skins taken from those animals to provide a proper covering. We see them place those skins on the bodies of the sinners to effectively and properly cover their nakedness in God's appointed way. We thus see or understand that bodily nakedness is thus indicated or can be equated with a sinful state before God, a condition that must be covered or clothed to find acceptance with him. We know that this blood that we have seen shed to provide this covering has been shed very likely upon an altar and that it really provides the proper covering, the required covering, the atonement necessitated by their sin. And it has taught them their first lesson 
the first lesson mankind learned, that life was forfeit for sin, and that the shed blood of a divinely prepared lamb is provisionally poured out in typical expiation or covering of their transgression. This, our first picture, is the primary scene of the scriptures to which all that is to transpire for the next 7,000 years from this time we are considering is to be related. Sin has entered and its consequences, condemnation, alienation, and death have now come into the world which, because of the holiness and righteousness of the Creator, require expiation, justification, and redemption in order to finally bring about the original purpose God had with the earth when he caused his spirit to move upon the face of the waters and begin the great creative week we read of in Genesis 1. And so the world that was originally created has now radically changed. And now we're going to look at another picture, another scene comes before us. And that occurs some years later. It is now of two men. One lies still and dead upon the ground. The other stands over him in an attitude of defiance and hatred. In the background, if we look carefully, we'll observe a firstling of the flock, another lamb, still smoking upon an altar with its blood poured out and around that altar. This too was a body prepared and offered by the righteous man, now lying dead. But that offering has been accepted by the Lord. We look at this picture a little more closely. And in another place we see a collection of the fruits of the ground. They too have been offered to the Lord, but were rejected. The reason being, no blood was shed and nobody prepared in such an offering. And such fruits, good as they were, in their way, could not give, could not be accepted as an offering for sin. Intense hatred leading to murder of his righteous brother Abel by the wicked king, who has also rejected the atonement available to him by his participation in the sacrifice of the lamb offered by his righteous brother is a part of this picture as we see the words spoken to Cain in Genesis 4-7 If thou doest well shalt thou not be accepted if thou doest not well a sin offering couches at the door that seems to be the proper alternate rendering of that verse and so we see in this picture a great prophetic drama enacted which has its consequences over the next 6,000 years. A time when the righteous are to be slain and persecuted by the wicked, to be climaxed by the slaying of the Lamb of God by his brethren, whose well-being he sought. What a picture. 
And now let's look at another one. And this is one of the most poignant of all the pictures of the Bible, one which particularly parents must be and are very moved to consider. An aged father, we see in this picture, standing with a knife poised over his son who lies bound upon an altar and the wood is ready to be fired as, as soon as that knife is lowered. There's one thing we cannot see in this picture which is perhaps one of the greatest things this episode contains. We can't see the great inner struggle that has taken place within this aged man. The great struggle which this father has had to comply with a divine command to do this. But here our imagination and our feelings can enter this picture. And we should be very moved by it. For this bound figure is his child of promise, the result of a miracle birth. It is the one upon whom rested the future fulfillment of the coming and development of the seed who would bring the future blessing of God to the earth in which ultimately all the families of the earth would be blessed. But the same God who made that promise was also able to bring that son again from the dead if only Abraham can find the strength and faith to carry out the instructions he's received. And so, in this awesome scene, he raises his knife to complete the task. Ah, in that instance, a voice is heard. We hear it speaking. It speaks from heaven. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah or Yahweh Jireh. As it is said to this day, marginal reading, in the mount of the Lord he shall provide. Again, thus we see a body prepared, prepared of God, and bloodshed by divine provision and direction. And so this act of faithful Abraham brought forth the commendation and blessing of the Lord. By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, thou hast, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee. And in multiplying I will multiply thy, seeds, thy seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. And the apostle, looking back 2,000 years after this occurred, saw in this a typical resurrection, which points forward to another one received from the dead. And he remarks on it, in those familiar words in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, by faith when he was tried, Abraham offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son. It was as good as done. 
accounting, and here's how he did it, accounting that God was able to raise him from the dead, even uh, raise him up even from the dead from whence also he received him in a figure. We come to another picture. We look down the stream of time, several centuries. Now we see before us a panoramic scene of a very numerous people, a slave nation, in bondage in the land of Egypt. In this scene, each family is gathered in its house in a state of great expectancy. They've been alerted to something. They've been alerted to prepare for deliverance from their bondage and to go forth to freedom and return to the land of their fathers, a God-promised land. But before they depart, a great calamity is to occur to befall their oppressors. The angel of death is to pass over through the land and all the firstborn of every Egyptian family is to perish. But a way of deliverance is provided for the slave people. A lamb is to be taken and specially prepared as they were clearly instructed in Exodus, the 12th chapter. Speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb. According to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats. And ye shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it upon the two side posts and the upper door posts of the houses wherein ye shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in the night roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs, and with a pertinence thereof. You notice the careful detailed instructions as to the preparation. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, and your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt. Will I execute judgment? I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by the ordinance forever. Again, further in the chapter, the use of the blood is emphasized. And ye shall take a bunch of hyssop, and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike it on the lintel and the two side posts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. And for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. We cannot imagine in this picture a, a more stirring and impressive procedure and preparation. Again, we see a body prepared in each house, a lamb for each household. And now let's carefully note in our picture 
The saving emphasis of the act clearly centers in the careful use of its blood. A sprinkling of the lintel and the two side posts of the doors of each house thus ensuring the passing over of the death angel with the deliverance of the of Israel's firstborn while each Egyptian family is stricken with the loss and great mourning results throughout that cursed land. The following morning our picture shows us a slave, the slave people go forth on their journey, all their firstborns alive and well. They go forth to freedom and to deliverance from bondage. What a deliverance was wrought through the sprinkling of the blood of the Lamb. What a foreshadowing of the far distant future events and deliverance of others in greater bondage to sin and death through the blood of the Lamb. Let's turn a page. We see another picture, another scene. And now, another panorama. The tents of Israel, the same people, spread out, surrounding the tabernacle in the wilderness. We see the high priest leading a bullock into the court of the tabernacle, which is surrounded by the tents. We see him leading it, followed by other priests, each leading an animal. They go to the altar of burnt offering within the court. Each animal is perfect and without blemish. There are about 15 or 16 animals in all. It is the great day once a year in the life of these people. It is the day of atonement, the day of coverings. Yom HaKippurim, popularly known as Yom Kippur. The day in which they were to afflict their souls in a great collective repentance for their sins. And now we look closely. We see each animal slain by the high priest, all except one, each slain by him in proper order and time throughout the day. They are slain before the altar, and the blood of each is carefully caught in basins, kept stirred in the meantime to prevent coagulation by one of his fellow priests. We look again. We see the high priest take in succession the basins of the blood after each slain. The first, that of the bullock which he was leading, he takes into the tabernacle, into the most holy place, within the veil, and he sprinkles it, the mercy seat, before the altar, before the uh, veil. He sprinkles it with the blood, and then seven times toward the mercy seat, eastward. He does this, we're told, with a bullock, first for himself and for his household. And he repeats the same sprinkling in the same order with the blood of the goat, which he again goes out and gets, brings back in, sprinkles it exactly the same way. But the blood of the goat is for the sins of the people. Let's remember that. He then returns, goes out to the altar of burnt offering again, and sprinkles it with the blood another seven times, having combined the blood of the bullock and the goat, putting some of the blood on the horns of the altar, the four horns, on which the bodies of the animals lie bound, ready to be burned. 
Now let us remember in this scene, we see the strong emphasis placed again on the meticulous use of this blood. Not only on this, but on other sacrificial occasions in careful observance of the divine instructions. The temporal well-being of the next year as well as the promised atonement for the sins of those people of the past year was dependent upon the high priest following the Lord's commands in each detail, particularly the use of the blood. The importance of the blood in the atoning sacrifice is epitomized in the 17th chapter of Leviticus. I suggest you turn with me to this chapter. Uh, we're going to read two verses, but we want to note particularly certain uh, things. Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Verse 14, the first part. For it is the life of all flesh. The blood of it is for the life thereof. Now, here is taught a very profound truth, a truth that is to bear upon and foreshadow the redemptive work of God through Christ from Eden to Calvary and beyond. We have considered the fact that the penalty for sin was death, and therefore life was forfeited for disobedience. This physical life of all flesh, both man and beast, is told, we're told, was in the blood, which was energized by the oxygen men breathe, and the blood as a result circulated throughout the body by the heart. Let a man cease to breathe, his heart stops, the blood ceases to flow, and man dies. And so does the beast likewise, as we're told by the wise man Solomon. They, men, are like the beast that perish. The blood of the animal offered in atonement, of course, had no intrinsic power, no power within itself to make atonement. Such power was communicated or impart, imputed to it solely by the decree of God. Look at the words again. I have given it to you. to make atonement for your souls. But that vital pronouncement, having once been made, the atoning power imputed to the blood was a very real power. For God meant what he said when he declared, it is the blood that maketh atonement. Moreover, the far greater purpose with which God, through the Mosaic law, assigned atoning power to merely animal blood was to testify and foreshadow the need to the need for a future sacrifice which was literally as well as ritually perfect and efficacious to take away sin not just to cover it, but to take it away. And to teach Israel in the meantime to look expectantly for it in the person of a Savior and Redeemer who would offer his own blood as a covering and cleansing from all sin 
as John testified he did, and his blood, as John testifies, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1, 7. Thus we see again, on this great day of atonement, bodies specially prepared, blood poured out and sprinkled in atonement, a temporary sin-covering ceremony carried on for over 1,300 years under the Mosaic dispensation, a powerful lesson to teach them the necessity for a greater offering still to come which would completely and finally take away sin for those of faith. And for our next picture, we move down through those 13 centuries. And we look now at another scene. We see a baptismal ceremony taking place at the River Jordan. We see the baptizer, John, engaged in the service in which crowds are coming for baptism. We see John suddenly look up and we with him see a gracious figure coming toward John. When John sees that figure, by divine inspiration he cries out, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. We see that personage going down into the water, his being immersed, and as upon his arising, we see a bright light from heaven resting upon him in the form of a dove. And we hear a heavenly voice spoken for the first time in acknowledgment of him. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. It was necessary it should be so. For here before us is the most unique figure in the world's history. The Son of God, by direct divine begettal of the Holy Spirit. Yet he is also the Son of Man, the seed of the woman, spoken of back in the beginning. Thy seed shall bruise the serpent's head. But she was also a sin-stricken woman, having a grievous heritage, a sin-defiled nature with all its sad consequences. Two thousand years before this, it had been asked by the suffering Job in his agony, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? And the answer was, not one. And so it is that here, upon whom this shaft of the divine light rested, was a body of necessity specially prepared, being specially prepared, we should say, having been circumcised the eighth day to place him in covenant relationship to God under the Mosaic law and in a spiritually alive condition as regards the first act of typical justification from his sin-condemned nature. The Apostle Paul, who said, I can do all things through him who strengtheneth me, this man, he had considered his position before God in this connection. And he lamented. He said, I was alive too, without the law once. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. That is, he too had been circumcised and placed in an alive condition. 
But when he became of mature uh, age, when he grew up, the commandment came. The law bore in upon him. And the weakness of the flesh caused him to transgress. And that first transgression is the I died condition that he speaks of here. But this is Paul, a man born of the will of the flesh, and not Jesus. Jesus was placed in this alive condition by circumcision, but he continued in it for 30 years until he came to John for baptism for a further preparation, a further justification from his sad heritage through his mother. He never personally sinned during that period. One of the reasons for his great uniqueness. And from these waters of the Jordan, he's to go forth as the suffering servant of Isaiah's prophecy, to minister as a teacher and a preacher of righteousness, ministering to those in bondage to sin. And for this he required a preparation, a baptismal washing, a coming or manifestation and justification by water. After the type of Aaron, who was washed and ceremonially clothed and consecrated before he began his ministry in the days of Moses. For like Aaron, the Mosaic high priest, Jesus was also to make an offering, first for himself and then for the people. As the apostle testifies in Hebrews, for this he did once when he offered up himself. Jesus was baptized by John prospectively into a figure of his own future death, burial, and resurrection. For he must partake as the first fruits of the redemptive benefits of his own bloodshed in the sacrificial offering as the covenant victim of the Abrahamic covenant, for which he, as the body prepared, was being manifested at this time by John, or through John, through John's baptism. Thus, he would, having fulfilled all righteousness, the righteousness of the Mosaic law, as well as that of the involved in the Abrahamic covenant, was also the body prepared when his perfect justification and redemption would be sealed in time by his own blood. He would then be the properly constituted one great offering for the sins of the people which the Father laid upon him as the uh, prophet testified, he hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Thus he was a paradox, to use Brother Ken's title of his talk, he was a righteous sin-bearer. Indeed, he spoke of his coming death as a baptism. The antitypical baptism in his reply earlier to John and James's request that they sit on his right hand and left. And he said to them, Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what you ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with a baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, Ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, baptized with all, shall ye be baptized. Speaking in both cases, once of his coming death, and then of theirs for Christ's sake. Thus, moreover, 
Jesus was baptized by John into a figure of his own unique holiness, which began when the Eternal Spirit, as we saw in our picture, descended on him and abode with him, continuing throughout his ministry, finally climaxing in his obedience even unto death. Our last picture comes before us. More than three years are to pass before this closing scene. We now see a hill outside the city of Jerusalem. On its crest are erected three crosses, upon which are suspended three figures in crucifixion. The limbs of the two side figures have just been broken to hasten their death. But the central figure, upon examination, has already expired. His body is covered with blood from the awful Roman scourging with a metal-weighted whip which literally cut the flesh of the back to ribbons, even as it had been testified of him by the prophet. I gave my back to the smiters. I hid not my face from shame and, and spitting. The prophet had further testified. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Likewise, from the thorns pressed upon his brow and the nail wounds in his hands and feet, we see the blood flow. And now in our picture we notice a Roman soldier probably riding up, and we see him closely examining the body as it hangs there. And seeing it already expired, he doesn't break the legs. The record further indicates, according to John, in the 19th chapter, one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, They shall look on him whom they have pierced. We see the blood pour forth from his pierced side. We see it shed upon the ground beneath the cross. We know this blood was not a magic fluid having any intrinsic power, no power within itself to save. Had it been caught in a vial, it would have helped no man. It is the lifeblood of a perfectly personally righteous man, one who has overcome the inherent weaknesses and sinful propensities of sin in the flesh, one whom God recognized the preciousness of his blood, one whom God had provided, as Paul declares in Romans, the third chapter, verse 25 and 26, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation a mercy seat through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say, at this time, God's righteousness, that he, God, might be just and the justifier of him who believeth in Jesus. This blood 
covering the body prepared, the figure on the cross, and now flowing around it, is the anti-typical blood of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. It is the blood of the Lamb slain in Eden, that of the firstling of the flock offered by righteous Abel, that of the ram slain and offered in Isaac's stead, the blood sprinkled on the doorposts in Egypt for deliverance from the bondage of death and slavery to sin. It is the antitypical blood of those sacrifices for sin offered during those centuries sprinkled on the mercy seat in the tabernacle under the Mosaic's dispensation, which that shedding on the cross now brought to a close, the Mosaic dispensation. It is the precious blood of Christ, says Peter, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It is the blood of the mediator or covenant victim of the new covenant, the Abrahamic, shed to ratify it as the only covenant promising resurrection, hopefully to eternal life. It is the blood of sprinkling which enables those through faith who through faith draw near, having their hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. It is the blood of the everlasting covenant through which the crucified Savior was brought again from the dead, and through which those who belong to him will be likewise delivered through their having entered into prescribed relationship established through faith in his blood by baptism into him who came first by water and then by blood as John declares it is the blood of the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world